All right, this morning we are starting in 1 Samuel chapter 22. We have been walking through 1 Samuel. We've probably got a couple of more sermons here in 1 Samuel. I'm going to do a handful of sermons out of 2 Samuel, and then we'll move on to something else. But we've got another half a dozen or so. 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of God. David departed from there, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his And all of his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful rainy morning as we have gathered as your people, we've gathered into your presence, and as As the rain comes down from heaven, we long for your grace and your spirit to come down on us. We pray that you would speak in the midst of your word. And as the rain goes forth from heaven, I pray that your word would go forth and accomplish all of your purposes for life and health and glory for your own name. We ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We pick David up here in the cave of Adullam. It says he departed. He fled from court, and he's down in this cave. Time has passed since the slaying of Goliath. A bunch of things have taken place. You know, last time we looked at the covenant that Jonathan, <clears throat> that Jonathan made with David. He's married David, uh, Jonathan's sister, Michael, one of Saul's daughters. David became immensely popular following the slaying of Goliath, as you could imagine, and then he's given some other military responsibilities, and he's been successful, and so his fame is growing, and, and Judah, we're told, Israel and Judah loved him. And we're told in chapter 18, verse 12, shortly after the covenant, we're told that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but that the Lord had departed from Saul. So Saul sees the writing on the wall. He understands very shortly, this is still chapter 18, right after the slaying of of Goliath and the covenant with Jonathan, he recognizes that the Lord is with David and he recognizes the Lord has departed from him. And he knows that the kingdom is going to be taken from him. He sees the writing on the wall, so we're told he was afraid of David. Chapter 18, verse 25, we're told that Saul sought thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. He sets about trying to kill David. He's afraid of him, and so he begins to pursue him. He's in his court at one time. He tries to pin him to the wall with a spear. That doesn't work. He puts him over a military campaigns and sends him out, which is interesting. Later on in David's life, he does this to someone else. Puts him at the head of a military campaign to, uh, to get rid of him. But Saul tried it on him a couple of times, sends him out, hoping that he'll die in battle, and he doesn't. He sets him some difficult tasks, hoping he'll die in the course of them, and he doesn't. So again, he tries to pin him the wall with a spear, and he misses him. So David has been dodging Saul in every way for a period of time. The last time he sends an assassination squad to surround his house, he basically calls a group of his court together and sends them. They surround his house, and his wife, Michael, helps him to escape out the back window. Jonathan helps him escape again. And so this conspiracy in 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 uh, Saul's children that helped David escape. Jonathan and Michael both, his friend and his 
wife help him to escape from their father. And that's what he does. He flees into the wilderness. This last attempt of the assassination squad sends David into the wilderness. He's running for his life. He goes to Nob and to Gath and he ends up at this cave in Adullam. When I was reading through this and I got to this little part on the cave of Adullam, I couldn't help thinking there's a little Robin Hood twist to things as you read about him hanging out in this cave down here. I mean, it's almost, it's not quite. He's not robbing from the poor and giving to the rich or anything like that. But there is this this sense, David has fled to this cave. It says, David, he departed from there and he escaped to this cave in Adullam where his brothers and his father's house come to him. And not only his family comes, the men of his house, but also, he says, everyone in distress Everyone who's in debt. All these people flee to him. He, fly, he hides in this cave. It's not Sherwood Forest, but it's out there, right? He, he goes into the wilderness. He goes where it's hard to find him. His brothers come. All of these disgruntled people come, those in distress and in, in, in debt and who are bitter. They're flocking to him. It says he becomes captain over them. There's about 400 men, so he's got a, this band of men. I don't think you could call them merry, um, but they're bitter. They're disgruntled. He's got a band of men hiding in the wilderness. So this most, the most righteous guy in the kingdom who is faithful to the true king is being pursued outlawed, hunted by uh, a usurper, a jealous usurper who wants to keep the throne for himself. And so Daniel, the righteous one, is hiding in the wilderness, outlawed, hunted. David knows that he's been promised the throne, but not yet. Right? Not yet. The time has not come. God has not given it to them, like Israel wandering in the wilderness before they got to enter into the promised land. So we got David running, hiding in the wilderness until he should attain the throne. And I think that we should see ourselves in this story where, for a lot of us, we will pass through many trials before we receive our inheritance. David's been promised an inheritance. He's been promised a future. He's been promised good things. But, but he has to pass through many trials and adversities before he attains to those. And in many ways, that's the life that we live in this veil. And already, but not yet, we've been promised all of these things. But we find ourselves having to pass through trials and adversities as we progress to inheritance. You know, it would be really helpful if at this point, here is David who has literally run for his life. He's had, got someone trying to kill him. He's tried to kill him on multiple occasions. He has escaped by the hair on his chinny-chin-chin. He's hiding in the wilderness. He's destitute. He's left all of his stuff. He's living in a cave out in the middle of nowhere. So he's destitute. And so here he is, and he's got these people coming to him. I don't know if it's good or bad when you get a group of unhappy people who come to be unhappy with you. Um, but there they are hiding in this cave. It would be good to know what is going on in David's heart. What's going on in his mind? How does he handle this adversity, this difficulty? Well, the good news, the interesting thing is that many of David's psalms were written during these periods. I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm 57. Which we're told in the inscription, it says to the choir master, according to the tune of Do Not Destroy, 
This is a mictum of David when he fled from Saul and was in the cave. Now, David was in a cave twice, so this may or may not be the cave. Many people think that it is, but either way, the circumstances would be virtually identical. Both times he was in the cave, he's running and he's hiding. So here, here is David. We've got a poet-musician in addition to a king, uh, in addition to an outlaw. And so while he's hiding in the cave, David, I don't know if he brought his harp and his lyre with him. It says he's going to use them and awaken the dawn. But he writes, he pours out his soul in poetry and in music, in prayer. The Psalms are prayers that are meant to be used in worship. And so David writes this. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and he will save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. So my soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of men whose teeth are spears and arrows whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God. Above the heavens, let your glory be over all of the earth. They set a snare or net for my steps and my soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and I will make melody. Awake my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O God, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. And let your glory be over all. The earth. This glimpse into the heart and soul of David. You can't imagine, I don't know if you could even imagine being in the kind of adversity that David is in. You can look at your life and you know that you have trials and struggles. And they're not to be diminished by the extremity of David's. We all have them and they're all serious and significant to us. We must pass through many trials before we get there. And it is it is fascinating, instructive, as God gives us the insight into a man after his own heart. And the prayers that he prays, the, this is the genuine, immediate outpouring of the heart of a man who is after God's own heart in the deepest trials I can imagine passing through in this life. And he starts out pleading for mercy. Right? It's the epitome of prayer. It should be that the... That the Center of all of our praying. The greatest human need that we have is mercy. I find this prayer on my heart almost daily. It's one of those prayers that has belonged to the church through the ages. We even say it in Latin, the Kyrie eleison, immortalized in song not many years ago. Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. So David, as he sits in the mouth of this cave with... I don't know if these men have flocked to him yet or not. He might be sitting by himself. He might have these guys trickling in. But here he sits on the run as an outlaw. And he cries for mercy. Mercy, oh God. I find myself entering a lot of different circumstances. And this, just breathing that prayer. Mercy, oh God. You know, mercy. I want your mercy on this situation. I need your mercy to rest on me. Save me in the midst of this. And he says, for in you, 
my soul takes refuge. Right? His body is hiding in a cave, but his soul is hiding in God. And this is, this is, this is what we must learn to do. There's you know, the old saying, you, know, you, can put the bird, you can put the bird in the cage, but you can't take his song away from him. You know, there is, that, there is that thing, you can be hiding in a cave, he says, but his refuge, his soul has fled to the presence of God. Right? He has fled not only to the cave, he's fled to his Lord. And then so in the midst of the cave, God is his refuge. Fleeing death. He's on the run. He's destitute. But he does not turn away from God. This is our temptation as often or not. When things get hard, it's very often that we find ourselves drifting away from the Lord. Whether it's that we're angry, whether it's that we're frustrated, whether it is we're not sure that He loves us anymore, whatever it is that begins to happen in our hearts, under these kind of adversities, we often go in the wrong direction. And David shows us very clearly that in the midst of these things, my soul takes refuge. He draws near to his God. He becomes his strong tower, his place of refuge. And so his relationship with God in the midst of adversity is deepened and strengthened. He knows him better. He leans on him more. He trusts in him more. It is through the channel of our helplessness. It's there in your bulletin. It is through the channel of our helplessness that God communicates his strength to us. And so a question I think for us this morning is do Do you know what it means for your soul to take refuge in God? I mean in an experiential, real, personal way. Do you know what that means? Have you experienced it? Have you practiced it? It's a real movement of the heart. It's a real experience of the soul. It's a real turning toward of reaching out. I lift up my soul to you, O God. I come to you. And he says, and he does this until the end of verse 1 there, until the storms of destructions pass. David has been running. This is at the very beginning. But before he's done running, eight years will have passed. He's going to spend eight years living in caves and living in the field and running and pretending he's insane and and hiding out here, there, and everywhere. He's going to spend eight years being hunted by Saul. That's a long time to be an outlaw in your own land. A long time to be looking over your shoulder and fearing death. A long time to live on the run. And that's the way it is for us. We we have very short, uh, low thresholds for adversity in America. We we have a sense of uh, entitlement toward comfort and toward things to be the way that they, they should be in our thinking. Life is a marathon, it's not a sprint. Right? It's a marathon, not a sprint. It's not a, a half-hour sitcom. You know, it's a, it's a multi-night saga. You know, it's, it's a saga that runs through our whole lives. And here is just a window of time. You know, he's, you, you get these seasons in his life, and here is a season that he has to pass through, and it's years. And I know some of the things that you're passing through have been going on for months, years. It's not uncommon. And in this life, there's one thing that we know. We've been looking at the broken down house on Wednesday nights. We just started this week. There's still time to come. 
copies in the foyer with our schedule. Uh, but it, it's about just this, living in a, light, in a broken down house where, where Romans 8 tells us and is, the scripture here tells us that the world we live in has been subjected to frustration and so we've been subjected to frustration. The world is in bondage to decay so our lives are in bondage to decay. And he says then in between this and the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Right? This, in the shadow of your wings this is an image that communicates God's nearness to his people. This idea if you're going to be in the shadow of his wing you've got to be pretty close. In fact he comes alongside of us to be in the shadow of his wing. <clears throat> he is alongside of us, next to us. He is shielding us, protecting us. He is near to us, which is this image that David says, as he, my soul takes refuge in you, and you come near to me, and you cover me, and you shelter me, and you protect me, even as I sit here in the middle of this cave, in the middle of nowhere. Charles Wesley captures this. It made me think as I was reading through this, I think Wesley, as he wrote his hymn, Jesus, Lover of My Soul, had these couple of verses in mind as he wrote them. They're a paraphrase of them. <clears throat> and he captures, as he writes his hymn, <clears throat> excuse me, that Jesus is the, is the ultimate way that God comes near to us. Right? We shelter in the shadow of his wings because God comes near to us. And it is in Christ that he ultimately comes near to us. So Wesley writes in his hymn, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, O my Savior, hide, till the storm of life is past, till the storms of destruction pass by. Other refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, ah, leave me not alone. Still support And comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed. All my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head. With the shadow of your wing. And he cries out in verse 2. To God most high. I cry out to God most high. It's a name of God. It's it's a name that, that conveys his sovereignty. His greatness. His power. His supremacy. His glory. And so he, he cries out to God Most High. Why? He says because to this God who fulfills his purpose for me. The God who fulfills his purpose for me. God is working out his plan. Even when David is sitting in the cave by himself or with a bunch of outlaws. Even when this lasts year, month after month and year after year. God is fulfilling His... He is God most high. He is sovereign. He is good. He is in control. And even, as, even in the midst of this adversity, He says, I will cry out to the Lord who is working out His plan for me. Right now, right here, in this. And then in verse 3, He says, He will send from heaven and He will save me. He will put to shame those who trample on me and He will send out His steadfast love and His faithfulness to me, He will send out from heaven the place of His power. And He will save. And He'll do two things, He says. He will trample my enemies under His feet. He'll put them to shame. And then He will send out His steadfastness, His steadfast love and faithfulness. 
right, these images of steadfast love, this word that gets used here runs through the Old Testament. And it's a word that's sometimes translated as his steadfast love, sometimes his everlasting love, sometimes just as his covenant love. It's the love that he has bound himself to his people with. It's steadfast, it's everlasting because he has covenanted it. Not unlike David, Jonathan, who loved David as his own soul and he covenanted with him. That I got your back, I'm on your side, I will be loyal to you and to yours. And, and the scripture tells us that is the very love that God has covenanted to us. And he says he will send out this, this steadfast covenant love and his faithfulness which flows out of it. Because he's bound himself to us. I believe in verse 7 is a turning point of this psalm. Where David twice repeats... My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. Which is really an amazing statement. Knowing where he is and why he is and what's going on in his life. It's really an amazing statement of what the Lord can do when he answers verses 1 to 6. When the Lord does, in fact, send out his steadfast love and his covenant faithfulness to his people when he hears us, when we cry out and he's working out his purposes and he, and he is merciful to us and shelters us in the shadow of his wings. And so David twice repeats this steadfast. He says, my heart is steadfast. It is settled, unshaken faith. That's what he's talking about. When he says my heart is steadfast, he's talking about him and the Lord. right? He, he is steadfast as God's man. He has an unshaken, settled faith unbroken faith, a trust in God, a trust in God that quiets him and assures him and strengthens him. And so he's all right. He's grounded. He's steadfast. He doesn't faint. He does not crumble. He is not destroyed by his circumstances. And the question is why? Because David is something special. We're going to see David's life. David is nothing special. David blows it. David's a sinner. He's like you, he's like me, he's a mess. But he's a mess that stays close to the Lord. He's a mess that reaches out to the right places and runs in the right direction. Right? He's a mess that, that knows and loves his God. And so we're told, we just talked about, that, that God sends out his steadfast love. And it's because of God's steadfast love that David is steadfast. He's steadfast in adversity. Because he turns and he trusts and he stands on the rock and he is not moved. right? He shelters on the wing so he is not swept away. God makes him steadfast. Is his strength. He's steadfast because he has the fixed belief that God is fulfilling his purposes for him. No matter when, no matter how long it takes. right? And this is, this is difficult. When you've been in the middle of something, whether it's been for weeks or for months or for years, the struggle is to believe that God is good, that God is for you, that God is with you, that God is still working out His purposes for you. And what helps us to stand steadfast is to have that truth saturate our hearts, to know that God is for us and His steadfast covenant love is never shaken. And if we stand in that, if we live in that, then we are never shaken. 
we are not broken. And, and to trust in the middle of it and to trust that God is not done with what he's doing. Because David will know in, the, in four, five, six, seven years into this struggle, just as we are many years into it, God could have crushed Saul at any moment. Saul will die in battle with his sons. He could have that battle with the Philistines at any moment. And in the death of Saul, David would be delivered. God could do that at any moment. But he doesn't. And he calls David to wait. And he calls David to trust him. He calls David to seek him out. And so in the midst of this, God's not finished with David. And he has them in the wilderness. God always has his people in the wilderness. As a, in the fire of adversity, he shapes our souls and he shapes our hearts and he shapes our minds as we walk with him, as we trust in him, as we try out, cry out to God most high, as we breathe those prayers for mercy, as we trust and make God our refuge, as we abide in him and hide in him and know that we sit in the shelter in the shadow of his wing. We persevere. There's no greater grace that a believer needs than the grace of perseverance. Steadfastness. My heart is steadfast. It reminds me of Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. Paul had brought, God had brought Paul and Silas to Philippi. He had called them there. Paul had a vision and, and said, you're basically a person from from, uh, from Macedonia, come, come, and Paul and Silas come, and they have a fruitful ministry. We get the story of Lydia, and God opens her heart, and she believes, and her household is baptized. There's this fruitful ministry, and then it turns on a dime. There is this uprising, and Paul and Silas are seized, and they take rods. We're told they were beaten severely with these rods, and then taken to prison and chained up. So here they are locked in, you know, they're having this fruitful ministry one day and the next day they're beaten and bloody and chained to a wall in a Roman prison. And this is what he, he says in Acts 16, it's there in your bulletin. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners who were in the adjoining cells were listening to them. You got to think, what are those other prisoners thinking? These two men over there bleeding and bruises, growing on their faces even while they sit there, singing at midnight and praying to God. Here you got these two guys in the midst of unimaginable hardship, but they're what? Their hearts are steadfast. Their hearts are steadfast. And then Paul and Silas are doing here exactly what David does. Right? It says that at midnight they were praying and singing psalms and hymns to God. That is exactly what David has been praying. And then right there in verse 7, he says, My heart is steadfast, I will sing. And I will make melody. Awake my soul, awake harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn, this triple awakening, right? Awakening my glory. Most people think that's his soul. You know, and awake the instruments means I'm going to begin to use them. And I will awake the dawn. He says, I will wake up. I can imagine him sitting in the cave watching the sun rise. And it's him and God. I will awake the dawn with my worship. I will find you as you have found me in the midst of all of this. And the content of his worship, I will give thanks. Verse 9, I will give thanks to you, O God. I will sing praises to you among the peoples. Why? Because your steadfast love is great. And your faithfulness is to the clouds. You know, it seems to me that that is, he has been 
He was praying that God would send. He was confident that God would send his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And it seems like here by the end of the psalm, he's experiencing them. They are the content of his praise, the overflow of his experience. I will praise you for these great gifts of yours that now saturate my experience, your steadfast love for me. And then he concludes with this chorus. And for those who think we ought to sing hymns that don't have choruses in them, and I, don't, I mean, most of us don't even think that. There are some who think, you know, songs with choruses in them are lesser. You know, they're somehow not as good as songs that don't have something in them that repeats. But the problem is, you read David, and he often has repeating choruses. Right? And we'll see this. Verse 5 and verse 11 are identical. And they ride and give strength to the whole thing. You'll see repetition in this psalm is where... Where David hunkers down, he concludes with this chorus, Be exalted, O God, and let your glory cover all the earth. Can you imagine if in whatever adversity you are in, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, that the desire of your heart would be this ringing chorus? And I think it's what makes his heart steadfast. Is this, that he wants God to be exalted. He wants God's glory to be shown on. He says, in my circumstances right now, my own personal circumstances and adversity, God, be exalted. You get the glory. And so the story of the whole thing is told in the three repetitions. David's running and hiding in the cave and this outpouring of his heart in this psalm. There are three repetitions. You catch them in the psalm? I think it summarizes the whole psalm, and for me, is the takeaway is he opens up with the double repetition, be merciful to me. Oh God, be merciful to me. And then in verse 7, he says, my heart is steadfast, oh God. My heart is steadfast. And then the double chorus, be exalted, oh God. Above the heavens, let your glory be over all the earth. Mercy, my heart is steadfast. And I live for the glory and the exaltation of my God. David began his prayer in deep distress. But before he's done, he worships, he sings, he's found refuge. He's steadfast in the grace and the mercy of God. My friend, do you know this God? Do you know him? Do you know that refuge? Have you experienced the steadfast love and faithfulness that reaches beyond the heavens and quiets your soul and makes you strong in the midst of the storm?